This is episode 46 of the Get In My Garden podcast, and I'm Aaron Moskowitz. Today we learn from landscaper, designer, and consultant Pete Wyden some of his principles of plant selection for an edible landscape beyond just the aesthetic and his system of working with clients and implementing his vision of edible meets native landscape design. We discuss ground cover options that are edible or herbal, research that's going on to find plant combinations and plants from similar bioregions around the world to safely fit into a new environment. Pete talks about how he works with larger scale farms using permaculture principles to improve our greater environment and the landscape industry and career opportunities related to this. We also talk about whether grasses and turf lawns should have a place in landscape design today and considerations for making a more bee-friendly lawn. If you like the show, follow on Instagram at GetInMyGarden and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen from. You can visit the website GetInMyGarden.com and sign up for my new email newsletter, which will include favorite articles I've shared with my close friends, research and information I feel you would enjoy learning about that fit with the mission of the podcast, which is to inspire and connect people who are focused on making conscious decisions about how to live their lives in a healthy and meaningful way, based on the knowledge given to us by previous generations who were so in tune with the earth, and also by the bright minds in the the science and technology fields that inspire our future. I'll be making some changes to the website this month to make it really fun and easy to navigate. Also, I will soon be able to offer awesome freebies via this email list. Feel free to reach out to me via direct message on Instagram or in the comments section of the website, and let me know what projects you're personally working on. There's a lot to talk about with edible gardening and edible landscaping. It's just a subject that's come up over and over. I am Pete Wyden, and I do a couple different things. I design ecological landscapes, uh, both residential and on farm scale uh, around the Midwest for retreat centers, educational farms, things like that on the larger scale. And I also mentor other ecological designers who are looking to grow their business. I got into edible landscaping when I first got this book called Forest Gardening by a man named Robert Hart, H-A-R-T. He was a British forest gardener, which is a, a permaculture type of, uh, well, it's it's been appropriated by permaculture, but forest gardening mimics the structure of a forest uh, with edible, medicinal, beneficial plants of all kinds. That led me to study ecology and then get a master's degree in landscape architecture. And I just evolved into various avenues from there. Awesome. So in Minnesota, it's pretty easy to plant things that are edible and herbal. um, But are there certain plants that are easy to plant anywhere practically or some principles at least that people can use anywhere? Yeah. I mean, there's, as many people would know, there are certain conditions that are required for any given plant. Of course, plants need light, water, certain nutrients, etc. And really what influences that for the most part is the amount of sun you've got, the climate you've got, how much rain there is, does it freeze and for how long, when what types of soils does one have because of course soil pH and the available nutrition and what a plant is adapted to definitely affect that. What I would say is I guess if we're focusing on the residential scale, which I think would be applicable to most people, Mm -hmm. we're looking at plants that are relatively low maintenance. So especially perennial plants. So I work with a lot of fruiting shrubs, for example, and a great aspect of doing this more permaculture, ecological orientation to design is that what we're just doing is stacking the benefits of any given plant on the landscape. So I might select a shrub that's going to be in the corner of a property that gets 10 feet wide, 12 feet tall, such as an elderberry, 
And elderberry actually is a plant as far as in North America that works in a lot of different places. There are different types that grow in the desert even, but especially here in the Great Lakes region, we've got them all over the place. Not only does the black elderberry, Sambucus canadensis is the Latin name, not only does that provide an edible, very healing medicinal berry that's great for the immune system, and it's also been shown to help with Alzheimer's symptoms even. It's native, it feeds the birds, you can't kill the thing. It's going to keep doing, you know, doing what it does. It's pretty drought tolerant. So looking at all of those different functions is how I start to see, aside from just aesthetics, what benefits this could have to the lifestyles of the people living in a certain area. And so I think the main type of plant that I use most often are those fruiting shrubs. And, you know, another one might be blueberries, although they have more specific requirements. And we're looking at soil blueberries, like a really low pH between, let's say, like four and five and a half pH. Mm -hmm. And so they're used to growing in a place that most people don't have that type of pH in their yard unless they live in a bog or some other kind of really acidic soil. So other plants, fruiting shrubs that can handle a wider array that are more generalist are definitely going to be those that, you know, we're able to grow in a lot of different places. And the things that we're all familiar with, like raspberries, blackberries, a lot of these berry producing plants can be pretty low maintenance and also provide some habitat at the same time. Awesome. And what to what point can people take this? I mean, it's kind of a movement, I but mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like something that most people lead with. A lot of people are into the organic design and permaculture, but how much of a component is edible landscaping normally? Well, yeah, it's interesting. So when I'm approaching anyone in the public with what I do, I just tell them I do edible meets native landscaping. Uh So we're combining the two. So if something's native and it has an edible fruit, that's awesome. And, you know, if it works in a certain space or for the type of garden that we're creating, but you can take it really as far as you want. There are a lot of people looking for edible, but in the landscape world, everyone wants low maintenance, which is important, although what that means for various people is totally different. One aspect of being a consultant and doing designs for people, what I do is I create master plans for someone's yard. And so we'll create a whole plan and I'll, you know, I'll design it and then we'll have a couple meetings to understand if it's, if it's the right thing for them. And then I give them a phased installation plan so they can actually make sense of how does this all come together? Because for anyone to rip up their entire yard and suddenly transform everything, it's just overwhelming. So what, what I'm trying to do is make it really approachable for people and easy to implement. And while a lot of people are interested in the edible landscaping aspect, they really are concerned about how much more work is this going to put on my plate. And so that's really when, you know, some of these old techniques of mulching or sheet mulching, um, using plants that cover various niches in the garden, such as using ground covers, using smaller herbs under two feet, using shrubs, you know, using small and large shrubs, using trees, using vines of various sizes. You know, this is where we get kind of into that forest garden aspect. But in any given area, we're using plants that have different types of root structures that are paired together so they can grow in the same spot, but won't be overly competing with each other. And also so there won't be exposed soil if we don't want plants to come in because almost all of our plants in the landscape are pioneer species like the dandelion Mm -hmm. the plantain you know so many like thistles they they're wind-borne seeds they're just trying to get somewhere with bare exposed soil and they're doing a service for us but in our yards 
it's not necessarily something a lot of people want or necessarily know how to make use of. Uh-huh. Are there certain ground covers that people use that are edible? Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the most common ones I use is a alpine strawberry here in the north. And there are other small strawberries that can be used. You can use the regular size strawberry as a ground cover as well. These plants that are trailing and also produce a fruit. And there are many different you know, ground covers that will provide some type of usefulness. So there are you know, some various herbs such as if you're, <laughs> if you're brave enough, you know, using mint or oregano, uh, various herbs or, or different types of thyme, uh-huh. culinary thyme, that can be a creeping ground cover, especially in sunnier locations. And then there are also some things such as wild ginger, I'll, I'll say some of the Latin, Asarum canadensis, which is something that would grow, say, like Illinois and farther north on the east side of the Rockies. And there is a wild ginger that's out west too. So I've, as a little bit of background, I live in Minnesota now, but I've designed in Michigan, Oregon, and Florida. So just for people's reference. Gotcha. So, Very different um, approach, I'm sure, in those places. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But at the same time, you know, it's really mimicking that structure of our natural system where we do have ground covers and then we have various sizes of plants versus just, you know, say one story or one type of plant in one area. Because in general, that's the type of natural expression. If you've got a whole plant swath of one plant covering a large area, that's not very stable in nature. It usually needs a little more diversity to be something that we can maintain easily. Makes sense. Are there certain things that are being researched right now, like cutting edge design components or like actually plant research that people are doing to discover new pairings or whatever? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So one thing that I learned about a few years back, which I had kind of toyed with the idea of, but it hadn't been put very clearly to me before, is this concept of climate analogs. And this was in a permaculture course I took out at the Bullock Brothers Homestead on Orcas Island in Washington. It's an amazing place. It's been around for 30 years. They've got orchards, veggie gardens, gravity-fed watering systems. It's, it's a cool place. We were talking about climate analogs because in that environment, in the summer on, on that island in Washington and in a lot of the Northwest, it's kind of this desert climate where it's quite dry and there's not much rain. And the winter is when you get that characteristic Northwest, you know, misty, foggy, wetter period. Mm -hmm. But in the summer, it's this uh, quite Mediterranean type of climate. So this idea of and actual practice of using the technology at our fingertips to look at, say, where in Spain or where else in the world are there similar climates where, you know, there's a similar amount of rainfall, temperature, elevation, et cetera, where there are useful plants there. And then looking at those plants and seeing, okay, is this something that could actually work in our area? Is it going to be overly aggressive? Is it going to provide benefits? Is it going to actually work to transpose that into the landscape in our area? Makes sense. So that's something that's something where there are a lot of plants in the horticultural landscape industry that are more bred for aesthetic purposes that are brought over, bottle brush plant, other things from Australia, various sedums from around the world, more ground cover types of things. Lots of plants from Europe that we use here as wildflowers, or quote unquote, <laughs> yeah, you know, flowers in the garden, or European bellflower, for example. One that's an example of a plant that's overly aggressive that I wouldn't recommend planting. That's an area as far as the edible medicinal component where we can definitely be experimenting, and of course, being careful that we're not introducing any problem plants into our environment, such as people in the north probably know of the common buckthorn shrub 
Ramnus Cathartica, which has taken over so much of the forest in the Great Lakes region, especially. Gotcha. So it's important to be careful with that. But at the same time, we can do a lot to extend the season and diversity of our harvest by looking at some of those different plants. Interesting. And a question some people have asked me is, can mushrooms be a component of your edible garden? I mean, obviously a part of your garden, but can they actually be incorporated into a landscape design? Yeah, absolutely. I have several designs that I've put mushroom cultivation areas into And really, it could be something where you're just putting it in, say, mushroom logs or a stack of, there's various ways to cultivate mushrooms outdoors. But, um, you know, it could be a a little feature, kind of a sculpture that also produces mushrooms, or it could be an actual production area that's just like a big, long 30-foot rack of mushroom logs, such as oak and hickory, inoculated with shiitake, maitake, oyster, whatnot, that could be incorporated. And there are, of course, considerations to that, such as the amount of moisture, not too much, not too little, are are there other mushroom foragers such as turkeys and other things in the area? But it's totally something that I highly recommend people including in their landscape because it's a great source of protein and other beneficial compounds for us and also enhances just the diversity of the microbiota in the landscape. Yeah, definitely. I like the idea of having, I mean, people who are just mildly interested in landscaping, if you put just a few edible components in their landscapes, they're forced to think of it more holistically so that they, you know, are much smarter about what products they might add and thinking about the soil a lot more and everything. I mean, it's just amazing because as soon as you add an edible component, it kind of makes it real for everybody so that they really have to think about if there's a problem with a bug or whatever it is and their their yard is out of whack, they can't just go and find a quick fix to it. They have to really mm-hmm. plan. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is that those quick fixes are often just another step in the wrong direction and toward more imbalance. Definitely. So I totally agree. You know, having an edible medicinal component, having your kids out in the yard or a pet, there's so many people with dogs. Or, I've met a lot of people who their dog actually got sick and or passed away from certain chemicals in the yard. And I don't want to scare anybody, but we don't know what these chemicals are really doing to animals or to us, especially in combination with all the other environmental factors present and other chemicals in our environment. But it is such a beautiful way to help everyone be more cognizant of what we are putting on our lawns, on our plants, in our bodies, uh, because that's really a way in which we can personally make an impact on the health of the the world around us is um, at that community level. And then the awareness that that brings to, you know, what's happening on the larger scale and farms and things like that, which is one reason why I'm also working on that farm scale is because it's so important for us to look at on the greater landscape, how our management is affecting our health. And how about lawns? They've been kind of, I guess for a while, they've been unpopular, but now people are saying that they're, you know, certain grasses are really, really good. So where are we at with permaculture and lawns? You know, I think lawns can be great if they're ne- if they're needed. You know, if it's going to be some area that someone's playing on, or maybe it's even just a, a grassy path through the landscape. And of course, most of the lawns, I'm looking out at the lawn outside my window, and it's full of all kinds of little mallow family plants, uh, the marshmallow family, clover, and other things. That's just because it's naturally what happened. We don't put any chemicals, and few people in my neighborhood do, actually. But so much of the lawn in North America is, especially in cooler climates, Kentucky bluegrass and a mix of certain rye and things. A really interesting factoid is that clover used to be part of 
pretty much every seed mix before the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. But with the chemical companies looking for an outlet for some of their weed suppressant chemicals, they couldn't figure out a chemical that wouldn't also kill the clover because these are broadleaf herbicides. Mm -hmm. And so they just lobbied the seed companies to take clover out of the seed mixes. Whereas clover, from a holistic standpoint, is actually in the right conditions with soil bacteria present is fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere, putting it into the soil and helping the grass to grow. <laughs> nitrogen makes chlorophyll. It helps uh, you know, make chlorophyll, which is the green mm -hmm. pigment that plants make food with. So from a permaculture standpoint, looking at lawns as, is this truly necessary or is this just someone's idea of filling a space with a low maintenance cover? In which case, it may not actually be lower maintenance than planting something else that could be more beneficial. Or in terms of, say, planting some fruiting shrubs or vegetables or a couple fruit trees with an understory of supportive plants. Here in Minnesota, in the Twin Cities, there was recently an ordinance of some kind passed in St. Paul that encourages homeowners, um, they can get a cost share incentive for putting in bee-friendly lawns. So lawns with more clover, with some other flowering plants. There's some really great seed mixes around the country. If you're out in Oregon, for example, for some reason I, I lost the name right now of the seed company, but they they make these, it's ProTime Lawn Seed. They make these great mixes, these eco-long lawn mixes. I'm sure there are companies all scattered around the US and, and potentially abroad that make these mixes with things like yarrow and clover and thyme and also, as far as a really low maintenance actual lawn, there are mixes of different types of fescue, so creeping and clumping fescue that can really fill in. They have different types of spreading habits that those plants have, and the, the roots are about six inches long versus the two inches or so, maybe less, that the uh, regular turf grass would have. So they're much more drought tolerant. You don't have to mow them as often, but you can mow them to the regular length to, say, kick a soccer ball around. That is so cool. It sounds very interesting. As a, I yeah. mean, a basic old school lawn's just so boring compared to what you just described. Yeah, it's a lot more interest. There's habitat benefit, and you might not have to mow as often, and they definitely don't need the types of fertilizer fertilizers and things that people think that their turf grass needs. People listening to this are, I'm probably preaching to the choir, but Kentucky bluegrass and other turf lawns are supposed to turn brown in the summer. Mm -hmm. They're cool season grasses. So there are some other options such as a plant called buffalo grass that has become popular, which is much more heat tolerant. And so it will stay greener throughout the summer. But to let our lawns go brown, that plant's not actually dying. It's just going dormant. Mm -hmm. And are there grasses that have, you mentioned some go down six inches with the roots, but are, you know, like a plains grass would go down like 25 feet sometimes, right? Yeah, 15 or more feet for sure for those like switchgrass, big bluestone, things like that. And a lot of the forbs and prairies too. Yeah. Is, are there grasses that could be used in landscaping? Probably not as a turf grass, maybe I'm wrong, but that are really specifically good at building the soil and sequestering carbon? I would say the best one as far as the turf grass goes would be those fescues I mentioned, mm -hmm. strictly because they have longer roots. As far as carbon sequestration in the landscape, you, if somebody has a long enough strip, say along the boulevard, Planting some some prairie plants is great because they do um, store a lot of carbon in their roots, for example. Of course, planting trees is awesome too. I mean, really, I'm not an expert on which plants sequester the most carbon, but it definitely is those plants with very fibrous root systems that are creating a lot of 
extra soil organic matter because those roots turn over fairly quickly. Yeah. In terms of the the old roots die off and the new ones form. Yeah, it's something to think about. Well, and then do you want to speak about your industry a little bit? Because obviously in the last decade, there have been more and more uh, natural landscapers, permaculture designers, a lot of people in our generation who are wanting to make careers out of it. And since that's your mm-hmm. kind of your specialty, can you speak about that industry right now? Yeah. So a big aspect of that is, and the work I do with the clients that I help in growing their business is that so many people really have a passion for these more ecological applications in the landscape, but don't necessarily know where to start in terms of finding the types of clients who want what they do. And especially for somebody in a more rural area, it's easy to psych yourself out and think, oh, these people don't actually want what I have to offer. And so what we actually work on together is crafting an offer that meets people, you know, it's it's directed at the types of problems that their ideal client has. And it's pretty amazing once a professional is clear on what exactly they're offering, the opportunities really start to come out of the woodwork because they're much more aware of them, which is pretty interesting. But there are, I would say, 80% of the people that um, you know I'm aware of in my, my everyday life online and in person that I talk to who want to do this type of stuff professionally, either on a residential scale or even, say, soil consulting for farms and other other aspects of larger scale restoration or, or regenerative agriculture, they never get off the ground or, or really struggle because that pressure of not having clarity about what they're, what exactly they're offering and how it is presented. There are a lot of landscapers out there and some doing maintenance, some doing design, but is it a growing percentage of them that are focused on this? I do see more and more people waking up to the fact that, oh, wow, you know, I don't have to do, you know, design these gardens that are just pretty. I can actually, maybe it's not even that they think they can, they just have a a really innate drive to make a difference because of the state the world's in now. So I think that's really driving it, which is a really beautiful thing because some of the uh, things that we might see as negative going on in the world are actually driving this amazing cultural shift. There's a component of education in all of it, but I wonder about the the baby boomer generation who are the main source of wealth and I guess property ownership at this point in our society, if they're getting on board. Yeah. And so with the, the clients I work with, both in my design business and when I'm mentoring other designers, what we all see is that it's young families with with younger children, say under 10, and then the baby boomer retired generation who are wanting these types of landscapes. So there actually are a lot of people in that older generation, you know, 50, 55 plus, who I guess that's, you know, kind of the tail end of baby boomers. But I, you know, I've, I've had some really invested clients who were over 60. So they're definitely out there and they're, they're not too hard to find actually. Some of these native plant groups, birding groups, et cetera, if, you know, if, if you're into whatever you're into that's related to the landscape, there are going to be other people who are potentially interested in, in the same thing as far as what you offer. So that's, that's actually a way that I've found some clients myself. Cool. And are there people out there who, I mean, we started talking about some of the research with different plants from different regions. Are there some landscape designers who are specifically bringing in these different rare plants that are not known to other people? Or are we way past that? Are we just kind of at the point where we already know pretty much everything? Um, We're definitely not at any point where it's like, this has all been done as far as that climate analog, these new plants goes, but it really is limited based 
on the availability of that plant. So, you know, we might find some kind of oak tree that works really, really well somewhere in California in a drought area. Of course, I personally like to look at native plants initially rather than, or, or plants that are known to be kind of friendly in a given environment before we introduce new things necessarily. But it's, it really comes down to, is that plant actually available in the quantity needed? So a designer might want to put something in from South Africa that might work somewhere in Texas, but you know, is that actually available to the person they're designing, they're putting it in the design for is the real question. So it, it relates to the nursery trade too. Dan Hinckley's garden called Wincliffe. Have you heard of that place? Yeah, I have heard of that. Some friends of mine have been there. Wow. He's gone all around the world collecting plants. I don't know exactly right. the logistics of that, but yeah, he's, he's adventuring. I mean, yeah, he's been all around finding plants in Vietnam, in Africa or wherever. It's pretty impressive. And that is as, as far as I know, that's largely more horticultural, like aesthetic plant selections. But, you know, we need more people like that. For example, there is someone who's been doing it for quite a long time, Jim Gilbert with One Green World Plant Nursery in Portland, Oregon. There's a different nursery that he started doing it with, but he owns One Green World as well, or at least helps start it. And I have some friends that help manage that nursery in Portland, but it's onegreenworld.com. It was my initial exposure to the amazing world of edible plants. Uh, And I I designed edible landscapes in Portland for two years. So I got to know the nursery pretty well. So, you know, to have a nursery like this in your backyard, if you're, you know, in the Portland area, they ship as well. But what a what an asset, right? So that's an aspect of the nursery trade that is we're really in need of more people propagating plants that are appropriate for a specific region and that have also been grown in that region. So they're not shocked, say when winter hits, you know, there's not really freeze that often in in Oregon. It does freeze sometimes in the winter in Portland. But, you know, if we're planting something in Minnesota where that plant's going to be under snow for five months, it's really important to have plants that are already adapted to that so we can have a, a reasonable confidence for any homeowner. And so they, they're not getting disappointed. It's really important for people to have successes early on in anything that they're starting, if it's a business or a landscape. And so having these regionally adapted plants that are accessible to people, the nursery trade's kind of shrinking, but I see a lot of potential in the edible edible meets native nursery trade. That's really cool. And can you re-mention that book, the, f- the first book that you mentioned? Yeah, it's Forest Gardening by Robert Hart, H-A-R-T. Awesome. Yeah, and he's got, I think there's some kind of website related to him and his forest garden as well. You can even go visit it in the UK. Robert started his forest garden from scratch from a field, I believe. So it was all like fruit trees and nut trees were the overstory. There weren't there were probably some natives in there for sure, but it wasn't the type of thing where he's going out into an oak forest and just and popping things in. I think that's you know totally legitimate if the you know the goals are the attentions there for growing plants in the in a forest environment. But yeah, this isn't actually a, like a completely contrived forest. I see. One resource that I also wanted to mention is this book called Integrated Forest Gardening. And my friend Dan Halsey and then Bryce Ruddock and Wayne Wiseman wrote that together. That is a great guide to some of these plant combinations that can work well in this more structured forest garden setting. And also for any ecological designers listening, I run the Epic Eco Designer group on Facebook. And so you can find that and answer a couple questions and and join a really active group of professional ecological consultants and designers there. 
And I also have a website for you know, people who are looking to grow their business in ecological consulting, petewyden.com. So that's P-E-T-E-W-I-D-I-N.com slash discover. Excellent. That's great. Awesome. All righty. Well, th- yeah, this is fun. Likewise. Thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. Have a nice you day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. I hope the Get In My Garden podcast has inspired you to continue your learning, to continue your holistic hobbies, your projects, and your businesses related to natural farming, hydroponics, aquaponics, bees, fungi, soil and the soil food web, microbes, plants, and however you are involved in entertaining yourself in a way that benefits the earth and our future.